Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is the March 2020 Barbell Medicine Research Review Podcast. The topic this month is ineffective treatments. And before we hop into this, I have a few important announcements. We have a flash sale going on right now over the barbellmedicine.com website on all supplements and apparel. You get 20% off. You don't need a code to enter. Just head over there, pick out what you like, and you'll get 20% off. That runs from today, March 10th, through Sunday, March 15th. Announcement number two, we are now selling individual issues of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. So if you're on the fence about joining, but you really liked a topic that we talked about, you can go over to the Barbell Medicine website and get individual issues. Check it out and see if you want to subscribe and join our Barbell Medicine Research Review. And then finally, as always, you can get 50% off if you sign up today for the Barbell Medicine Research Review. Use code research at checkout and get half off your first month's subscription. Without further ado, let's get into it. I think the original the original choice of topic was ineffective treatments, and then I think Mike's uh, Mike's bias took a little <laughs> took a little spin on it and and uh, worded it as ineffective treatments, but uh, I mean um, as passive modalities. But that you know uh, mine in particular. Um, went in a little bit of a different direction. In general, overarching topic, things that don't work. <laughs> that silky voice you're hearing on the other side of the uh, of the audio is Dr. Austin Baraki, the second most handsome doctor in North America. We're going to get right into this. So Austin, this month, you kind of already alluded to it. Your uh, review was on medical reversals in evidence-based medicine. Uh, and, and I assume you, you just did an article. You didn't do this that book-length uh, article by... Prasad that came out recently, which is like, I think you said it was something like 200 citations or whatever in that particular article. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was a, he's one of, he's the the senior author on this particular paper that I reviewed unsurprisingly on the topic of medical reversals. And really just for, for context, you know, uh, uh this idea of evidence-based medicine, uh, in other words, using, uh, some form of scientific evidence to inform our clinical decision making is a relatively new idea. Um, and with that said, we know that science has a lot of flaws. There's a lot of imperfections to it. And, you know, the idea being that rather than rigidly adhere to say every scientific paper that comes out, we should kind of let the weight of the evidence and the data kind of draw us, um, you know, uh, accordingly. And so there's this idea that a lot of things that maybe we used to think worked or that we've been practicing and doing for a really long time, um, even some that have maybe initially shown promise in some scientific studies, um, a lot of them ultimately uh, end up being shown to not be as effective as we thought or completely ineffective or even worse, might cause more harm than good. And, uh, and so that was, that's kind of the idea of a medical reversal is where subsequent evidence comes out to show that something that we previously thought worked doesn't really work. And then that brings up uh, even more complicated questions of how do we actually de-implement this stuff? How do we get people to stop doing it? Which is, you know, it just as complex as behavior changes with all these medical conditions we talk about, but now it's behavior change in the context of clinicians practice patterns, which can be tough to shift. Yeah, they're, they're, that's, they can be very entrenched. And, but one thing I thought that you brought, brought up that's really important in that, that previous statement was that evidence-based medicine, the idea of practicing around the scientific evidence, or at least that being like some of the core underpinnings for how you make clinical decisions. You mentioned that's a relatively new 
sort of uh, idea. And, and I think particularly on the internet, people will make these claims like, well, medicine's gotten all this stuff wrong, you know, and start talking, you know, we used to do bloodletting or like use leeches and stuff yeah. like that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we've basically transitioned from eminence based medicine where basically a powerful or prominent individual would say something, you know, or think something to be true and practice. Pliny, Pliny the elder. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. 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 And, you know, we, we transitioned from that to evidence based medicine where we're not trying to do that stuff as much. And so both models have flaws and problems and everything else like that. But, um, a lot of the medical, you know, the, the practice errors that we've had been made in the past were during a time where we just weren't using evidence. I mean, the scientific revolution was just starting to take place, you know, so we didn't really get a chance to, to do that. So I think some of that criticism is unfair, but the, the other big part, which, which hopefully should be very clear by the end of this little review and especially folks who actually read your, the whole, the whole text, uh, we learn stuff all the time that conflicts with what we would quote unquote logically assume. And so what we know today, what we think we know today, 20 years from now, and certainly longer periods of time than that, uh, will, will pass and, and it'll be shown to be wrong or not quite as right or more complicated. That's just the nature of the beast. So like there are going to be people 50 years from now that are like, I can't believe those doctors used antibiotics for this thing <laughs> right like, yeah well oh because <laughs> we have we have uh, antimicrobial nanobots now and we can yeah handle. exactly yeah, yeah yeah it is pretty interesting i mean i you know most people might not even gr- understand that this concept of evidence-based medicine particularly it's uh, it's spread in the medical education world training world is really only since like the late 80s early 1990s so really not very long ago but you can, like you said, trace back to days where we talk about bloodletting or treating people based on the four humors theory or, or various other, you know, now clearly ridiculous concepts of, of kind of health and health and disease. Um, but even with the, the, the spread of concepts of evidence-based medicine, as you also mentioned, it has its flaws. It, had, it has its criticisms that I actually get into a little bit in, in, uh, in the article here. And really, you know, sometimes people end up uh, leaning far too hard on maybe the need for a randomized controlled trial where maybe it's not, that's not actually the best tool for the job. And that's a topic that we discussed in the nutrition uh, uh, article series that Alan Flanagan wrote for for our site where maybe RCTs in the nutrition world might not be the best tool for the job. And so maybe an overly rigid, you know, adherence to or or desire for those types of trials may be inappropriate in a certain clinical context. But at the same time, you don't want to go in the other direction and say, you know, this stuff is all useless and it's just going to be purely clinical experience based or based on my kind of uncontrolled observations in clinical practice, because there's actually quite a bit of other interesting data on this. So some of it I cited in in the old One Logic Fails Part 1 uh, article, where, for example, the... Um, the systematic review by Chowdhury and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine, where they basically looked at the relationship between clinical experience and quality of healthcare, i.e., does it follow kind of that the more clinically experienced you have results in higher quality healthcare? And they actually concluded that physicians who've been in practice longer may be at risk for providing lower quality care, uh, perhaps because of kind of entrenched clinical practices that may not uh, be as effective as as things that, you know, are more kind of up to date in the in the evidence world, maybe reluctance to de-implement refuted practices, medical reversals, things like that. Um, 
can be can be pretty problematic. So that's kind of one reason why particularly I mean, it's really even it's super interesting because, you know, we are not particularly far out of medical training. <laughs> and yet now I'm in a role where I'm teaching residents and medical students and I'll have students who are rotating with me and they'll suggest a treatment plan for something that I immediately recognize is currently what we're doing, but it's already something that has shifted just from when we were in school, you know, uh, 10 years ago is, is, is not that long, but already tons of things are, are shifting as was shown in this paper that I reviewed for this month. Yeah. So the, the one, another interesting paper that also recently came out was basically like the quality of care, uh, and the outcomes that hospitalized patients got based on whether or not the person who was caring for them was like within 10 years of graduating from residency or greater than that. And effectively, if you had been, if you were more recently graduated, they, those individuals had better outcomes. I mean, they even told us that in, in medical school, they were like, look, you know, half of what we're going to teach you here is going to be outdated by the time you get into residency and certainly after residency, we just don't know which half. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, as, 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 a, obviously a, a practicing clinician in, in a high acuity setting, uh, where IE where patients are actually sick, it's kind of concerning, you know, cause it's like, I feel like I've already learned a ton of stuff being in practice and there are, you know, mistakes that I've made and things that I've learned from, but at the same time, I want to be, you know, vigilant to, to not become kind of an out of date dinosaur on things at the same time, which is, which is tricky balance for sure. Sure. One of the interesting things I, I think that has happened through medical training and, and definitely through just this exposure to this continually developing science that is modern medicine uh, has, has been sort of uh, a, a, tr a transition to being less confident about how well I know something, it, meaning that I'm not sure that, you know, something uh, is the way it is and it's not going to change. And it's like, you know, it, it just be, basically be more open to change based on new evidence because again this like this stuff does change quite regularly i mean i think what is the uh, the average time for a new uh for for like medical adoption of a uh, of a new practice it's like 17 years right yeah yeah it's a long time <laughs> yeah so so it's like with that knowing that it's like okay i should yeah. be less less rigidly you know holding some of these ideas and i think that's actually been beneficial from the from the coaching standpoint the fact that you just get to be more fluid about it and, and less like dogmatic and less uh, rigid to, to use that word again. Yeah, I think there's the, the tricky part there is that, you know, on the other hand, you don't want to be uh, the person who immediately picks up and adopts a new practice, you know, within the first, you know, four months after it was published for the first time either. Um, there's because there are downsides to that, that as well. So there's a good article on this topic that I also cite by Dr. Uh, John Mandrola talking about the case for being a medical conservative. Um, in other words, kind of basically that you want to ensure that you're adopting high value practices that are supported by, by good evidence, uh, and things that don't fit those categories. Like you said, maybe be less confident, less, uh, less dogmatic about, about doing them in, in day-to-day -day practice. I feel like a lot of uh, my day-to-day -day work with residents and students is, um, poking holes in their, in how confident they are about a clinical diagnosis or a treatment plan, um, asking them, you know, why they're, why they think it's, it's this particular diagnosis. Could it be something else? Um, and how would we, how would we figure that out? Uh, basically downgrading their level of confidence and things. And so that they're, you know, uh, remaining open to the possibility that they could be wrong. Cause we get, you know, we screw up diagnoses and treatment plans all the time when we're dealing with humans, it's complicated stuff. Yep. And just to maybe hopefully reinstill some confidence in those listening at home who may be like, see, doctors don't know anything. They're just, you know, guessing. You would prefer to have 
a individual with a lot of training and be the one quote unquote guessing based on a large body of scientific research rather than just guessing based on something that they believe in that's not necessarily been shown to be true. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is I'm not really sure what what people's alternative is going to be. So (laughs) yeah, right. And and in addition, and, and like the other, the other potential is like believing what somebody is saying or recommending because there's a financial incentive there. So yeah. there was this, there's this guy on Twitter that perfectly highlights this. He was talking about coronavirus and what you need to do to prevent it. He's like, don't worry about washing your hands. Don't worry about, you know, limiting your contact with other humans. What you really need is beef liver. And I sell this beef liver <laughs> extract <laughs> yeah, <laughs> link. Right. You know, here's the link. It's like that sort of nefarious activity. Like you want that instead of evidence-based medicine, despite <laughs> all the f- potential flaws. Yeah. Right. Anyway. So I think your research review uh, is great. People really should, you know, if you're all interested in science and like how we go about learning uh, new things and incorporating them into practice, this thing is a great, great introduction to that. Uh, and then I think, your citation list is also excellent for directing people towards uh, additional reading. Now, let's say somebody is like, hey, guys, I'm not in a position to join your research review. Is there something else I can read on this topic? I'm really interested. What would you uh, recommend people read? Well, Prasad's book is a good place to go for that topic. It's called Medical Reversals. Um, That's one place to learn about this topic overall. But really, my this research review, again, like you mentioned, a lot of the references and citations that I use take this thing in a bunch of different directions, because it's not just the topic of, you know, we have this evidence that refutes a prior practice, it's actually then feeds forward into how do we then alter clinicians day to day practices like this whole choosing wisely campaign that was taught to us when we were in training. And we cite it a lot when we give our lectures on back pain and stuff like that with respect to, for example, the recommendation against imaging, uh, early imaging in, in, uh, you know, new, uh, acute onset, you know, nonspecific low back pain. But at the same time, we know that clinicians in general aren't really following these recommendations, despite, you know, boatloads of evidence on it, uh, strong recommendations from a number of different professional societies. So then it's like, you know, uh, uh, clinicians, another known problem is that they tend to overestimate the benefits of the things they tend to do and they underestimate the risks of what they tend to do. This is another well-established phenomenon. So with all this said, like we can, there's all this fascinating data on things that we used to think that ended up not really playing out. And I discuss and cite a bunch of those, but then it's like, you know, from a, from a, a, a behavior, clinical practice and behavior change perspective, then how do we actually get people to, to do some of this stuff, um, to bring their practices in line with, you know, uh, more recent, more updated, uh, and better, uh, kind of bodies of evidence on this stuff, which is not an easy problem to solve. And it gets probably harder and harder. Like we mentioned before, like the longer and longer clinicians are out in practice, it's probably harder and harder to kind of mold their practice patterns and bring them in line with, with current guidelines. Yeah. Harder to reach them because they're out there and they're harder to change them because they've been doing this stuff. It's like a, a it's, it's like a, an algorithm for them or like an yeah. autoplay kind of thing. It's yeah. like, oh, you have this. Boom. Here's where we go. You shift into yeah. that autoplay. I think it's especially prevalent in, uh, in, in non-academic practice settings or in private practice settings because that's even more a little bit insulated from this stuff. Whereas like myself, I practice in an academic setting where I'm constantly surrounded by all this stuff, which makes it a little easier to, to stay up on it. But anyway. Yeah. Yep. It happens. And so we're not trying to say these people are bad individuals. It's just, you know, sometimes it's it can an, be like that. It's another tough behavior change target is that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Cool. All right. So now we get to flip the script 
you've now graduated to the most handsome doctor in North America. All right. I've been relegated to second. It's just <laughs> happens just like that. Yeah. So I think you tackle the topic that we get boatloads of questions on. We get tagged in this stuff all the time. We get people DMing us about, you know, people posting ridiculous stuff on this topic. It is, uh, it is the wildly popular CBD. So what led you to this, uh, to this topic for the month? I mean, this is something that I've had, uh, as the Aussies would say, a keen interest in for a, a substantial period of time, just because of all of the media attention it's getting, uh, all of the um, market growth that has been seen within this field. I mean, I even talk about in the article, it's an eight, It's projected to be an $80 billion market by 2030. $80 billion. Uh, so that's a lot. And uh, so, you know, naturally just curious, like, what is it? What does it do? Like, as far as what do we have evidence for on it, like actually doing? And then and how does that compare with the actual the claims being made on social media? I mean, there's a company out there that's paying literally all of the top CrossFit athletes. Like if you look down their roster, it's like the who's who, like the top five from each of the men's and women's division. And their their claim is better everything. Yeah. Those those kind of <laughs> those kind of claims always get my attention. I, I forget where it came from, but uh, it was a line that basically said like if something is claimed to to treat or cure everything, then it effectively treats you cures nothing. But that's also not entirely the case here because you know the theme, while the theme was ineffective treatments, CBD is not uh, a, a completely ineffective treatment. There's a little bit more uh, nuance there, I suppose, right? Yeah. So just to clue people in CBD uh, is basically a uh, phytocannabinoid basically means it's a cannabinoid made from plants and cannabinoids are effectively chemicals that affect your endocannabinoid system. Your endocannabinoid system uh, is spread throughout the entire body. There are multiple receptors, CB1 and CB2, that these molecules bind to. In any event, you make CBD from one, from the flowers and leaves of cannabis. There are multiple different strains. Uh what you need to know is that hemp, for example, is a type of cannabis that does not have that has less than zero point three percent THC, and marijuana is type of cannabis that has greater than 0.3 percent THC. So in the United States right now, it's legal to make hemp derived CBD, but not marijuana derived CBD, even if they don't have THC in them. So. That's kind of like how we get CBD on the commercial market, although the actual purity of the stuff, which we'll talk about in a second, is uh, suspect. So in any event, CBD, uh, that's, how, that's how you get it. Um, it has became onto like the, the pharmaceutical market uh, as individuals who had these drug-resistant seizure disorders – um, where you use like self-experimenting with it and they found a little bit of benefit. So this is just anecdote. People said, I, you know, look, my kid's got this, uh, disorder, which either, uh, either Dravet syndrome or Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. These are both like rare congenital seizure disorders, uh, of childhood, typically present in childhood where they have like 80 seizures a month, for example, like it's all the time. They, and they have uh, this really interesting seizure type. It's, it's called a drop seizure. Effectively, the child sees and like drops. Anyway. Just go like atonic uh, or something. <laughs> yes, yes. It's yeah. So and they're having a lot of them, right? So you can imagine the parents are like, "Look, we'll try, you know, anything." Um, and I don't mean that in a in any sort of negative light, but you can understand like how this how they came to self experiment with the uh, CBD. 
And so a few parents reported like, hey, the symptoms got a little bit better. And so they actually did a bunch of randomized controlled clinical trials, meaning that you took individuals with Dravet syndrome or Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, and you split them up to get either placebo or CBD. The, the, neither the patients not, or the researchers or the clinicians knew who was getting the placebo, who was getting the CBD. And you studied this for a long period of time, months and months with a big enough sample size, hundreds of patients. And you saw, did the CBD actually imp- you know, improve the outcome? In this case, reducing the amount of seizure frequency. And so for those conditions, yes, there's a, they drop seizure frequency by about 50%. Which is good, right? So, so, I, assu- so I assume that uh, so I assume that similar large scale RCTs have been run for every other claim made about CBD. Would you say that's accurate? <laughs> I would say the exact opposite. So effectively, there has been almost no other randomized controlled trials done on large sample sizes for nearly any health outcome in humans for CBD. Like, like almost none. And so like, for example, we talk about anxiety. People say will say that CBD works to reduce anxiety symptoms. So the, none of the studies have and uh, have over a uh, hundred uh, over a hundred subjects. And most of them are single dose CBD studies, meaning that you give them one dose of CBD oil and you see how they did. And it's like, what? That doesn't mean hardly anything. Um, and there, none of them were done in individuals with anxiety either. They're all healthy individuals. So it's like, <laughs> I don't, I, you know, it's really difficult to like actually draw any firm conclusions. And none of the studies are compared to placebo either, except for the one I reviewed this month. So there's literally one study. Um, no data on CBD and sleep. No data on CBD uh, and musculoskeletal pain. Um, at, you know, so, and certainly none on exercise. But I would recommend that people read the whole article because I really go into the weeds here. Here's the most interesting thing, I think, and I'm not trying to give away the whole article here, but Epidiolex, which is uh, the pharmaceutical CBD um, made by GW Pharmaceuticals, goes right now for about $130 to $170 per milliliter. Uh, And usually a month's supply, you need 100 milliliters. Okay. So it's like $1,500 to $1,700 a month. It's very expensive. Okay. Over-the-counter CBD oil starts at $5, you know, and goes up from there. But when you actually look at uh, the most expensive one I found, I'm not going to name the brand because I don't want them to sue me, is about $45, $50. When you actually look at the purity of these products, so a recent study in 2017 bought 80, over 80 different uh, types of CBD via the internet and basically tested like, Hey, does the label actually tell you how much CBD is in this thing? Are there any contaminants is, you know, what's the purity here and found that less than half of all CBD products even have the correct amount of CBD labeled over, uh, and less than a third of them were free from contaminants. So it's yeah, like, that's, com- that's, that's completely right. <laughs> unsurprising to us, but, uh, should be surprising and concerning to those who are purchasing and using these. Yeah. So like you, you have this, you know, so people are like, all right, I'm not going to buy your research review. You guys are shilling for big data. What's the takeaway here? <laughs> the, the, the thing is like, we don't have great evidence on CBD for really anything outside of, uh, the, these seizure drug resistant seizure disorders and maybe 
maybe a sleep disorder associated with Parkinson's disease, but that's not even like really that good. It's just something I'm allowing to be possible. Uh, and what's more than that is that, that the actual supplements that you can get over the counter that are likely not what you think they are, have a significant risk of being contaminated. Uh, and, and, and so when you take all that together, I feel like the risks greatly outweigh the potential benefits for what we know right now. Yeah, I would, I would agree. And, and I think that, you know, we're not necessarily, uh, discounting the possibility of efficacy for other things outright, because I think that, you know, you would, you would agree probably that our understanding of the cannabinoid system, uh, is still fairly primitive. Um, and I think that as we understand, as we learn more about it, then that will, that will help. But, um, so it is certainly possible that we may discover, uh, efficacy of, uh, uh, CBD or similar things in other areas over time. But I think that rather than, um, the typical uh, thing that we see out there where people say, you know, uh, just name, name your symptom and it helps, or it helps because it worked for me, quote unquote, um, rather than, than those, those things that we see really commonly, particularly when using, you know, poorly controlled, unregulated, likely contaminated, uh, uh, variable concentration <laughs> products that you can get over the internet, we should, uh, we should probably, you know, actually study some of this stuff a little bit more rigorously. And if we find efficacy, then we should, you know, be able to use this to treat that condition, um, assuming benefits are outweighing harms with a product that is of, you know, sufficient quality that we can feel more confident that we're actually minimizing harms. I mean, I, it is not, I haven't seen this yet with CBD myself, but I've definitely seen in my uh, inpatient uh, hospital work, people um, using various supplements, peri or pre-workout products that end up uh, actually a couple cases of like acute liver failure, people who needed emergency liver transplants, things like that from uh, some of these kind of unregulated, potentially contaminated uh, uh, products. So, you know, for something where we have little to no data um, for unvalidated kind of outcomes and potential risk to be taking it, uh, it's going to be a tough sell, uh, at least from our perspective, to, to get on board with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just to like put this in perspective, you know, there is some hope. The research funding being dedicated to CBD is projected to go up to about $20 million as of this year, which is substantial. So we expect to learn more. But to like contrast that, we don't even know how CBD works. I told you guys earlier that there was like these endocannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2, but we're not even sure that CBD actually affects those receptors directly. In fact, when we look at how like that pharmaceutical CBD epidiolex actually reduces um, those, those seizures, it's thought not to have anything to do with the CB1 or CB2 receptors. So it's just a shrug. We're like, ooh, we don't, which, yeah. you know, there are some medications that we use that have a lot of efficacy that we don't necessarily uh, completely understand the mechanisms right now. But, yeah. but again, where we're at right now with the evidence, with the potential, potential risks of these contaminated supplements, yeah, it's, it's tough. I think that the, ta the, 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 the best explanation of our position, this ties into my research review topic, is if people are interested um, reading the article that I quoted, the, the case for being a medical conservative, that's what we're doing right now in the context of CBD. Sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, I understand the the plight of the, the consumer who's, you know, being bombarded with these ads and all these... Oh. Uh, fit fluencers, you know, saying, oh, you know, I drop this CBD oil in my coffee or in my nighttime tea or in my pre-workout. What the, it's, look, it's everywhere, right? You just, you need it. 
because I use it. You need to use it too. Discount code in bio. By the way, I'm going to get about 10% of your sale. So I don't have a conflict of interest here. I think that's, you know, that that's that's right. problematic for me. And I, I wish the fitness industry would do better. And I wish that us that the market would do better and and not reward these folks for for you know preying on the ignorance uh of of individuals we just don't know right now and so maybe we'll change the you know a couple thousand people's minds from listening to this but but or or more evidence or more evidence will emerge and it'll change our mind there we go (laughs) there you go there you go yeah we can go either way so very cool dr brocky thank you for joining us we're going to transition over now to our other researchers and we'll see what they had to do this month I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and also work with Barbell Medicine as a pain and rehab clinician. That he does. That is the silky smooth voice of Dr. Michael Ray. We're back with the March edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review Podcast. And you and I had a battle. We didn't know that we were battling. Or maybe you didn't know that we were battling. <laughs> but we had a we had a, an impromptu contest um, for who could write the longest submission. And uh, I think you beat me. Yeah. I uh, I only clocked in at 17 pages this month, and you were you're what 25, 26, something like that. So yeah, something like that. Good job, good job. So <laughs> your your review this month is uh, basically an update of your Logic of Rehab article about uh, the evidence on surgical intervention for meniscus in the knees, and so the title is called "The Bee's Knees." Uh, when did you originally write this thing? How how old was the original? Oh, that's a good question. I want to say probably 2017. It's at least two years old, I want to say. Isn't that wild? Like 2017 was actually a while ago. Yeah, three just, three years now, I guess. I know, yeah. Yeah, math sometimes hard. is hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's give the listeners at home sort of a lay of the land. What exactly is a meniscus? And why do we care about it? Yeah, so um, it's this kind of fibrous cartilaginous structure in the knee between the femur and the tibia. So um, a lot of people think of it as shock absorber uh, or cushion for the joint, so to speak. Uh, and it's quite common to have imaging that's done on the knee for someone presenting with uh, like especially activity-related knee pain and finding what I would just call alterations to meniscus at this point. And so... The intervention typically given for a lot of cases, uh, I think it's getting better now, but definitely in the past is, oh, you know, we image the knee, we find a meniscus tear and we need to go in and either try to do a repair or an ectomy, which is just cut out the frayed tissue. Right. So people will effectively present to their doctor with this knee pain that's occurring with activity. It's like every time I run, my knee hurts or every time I, you know, walk upstairs or lift weights, whatever. And so provided the physician doesn't say just, well, just don't do that. You'll be fine. The second part, the second part of the workup typically, um, which is, you know, we can, that's a, this is a whole nother podcast talking about like what you should do in that yeah. scenario as a clinician. But, uh, yeah, typically they'll order some imaging, so typically an x-ray and then, you know, you get prescribed some PT and then advanced imaging, you know, it, it look, it just, people just go down the rabbit hole if they, uh, with this. And so 
the common complaint that you hear, we actually still get it at our seminars and definitely on some of our social media questions is like, you know, I don't have any meniscus left. So it's bone on bone. And that's why I have pain. What's your response to that? I mean, I'm obviously not a fan of that bone on bone narrative, just because I can kind of get like a thought virus in people's brain. And they're like, thinking about their tissues just grinding down together on top of each other. And nobody wants that. Um, so I typically try to frame away with away from that. Um, an easy discussion point is framing the context of their experience, what we see in the asymptomatic data, which uh, there was actually a recent article that came out this year that I talk about in this write up that looked at 115 asymptomatic individuals and kind of um, found that you could have uh, like outside of like osteoarthritic changes in a knee joint, but you can find meniscal abnormalities as well. And so they go through that and they even found things that oftentimes we consider unstable quote unquote tears, like bucket handle tears. And they found that as well. Um, and so like, that's how I try to have those discussions is unfortunately, I don't think the biomedical model that the, we find ourselves in today is going to drastically change anytime soon. Not that we're not trying, especially at barbell medicine, but usually imaging is already done. So then we have to have that discussion about the findings. And so we try to normalize that as much as we can. Um, and so like what's kind of happened in this process is the BJSM released guidelines, I want to say in 2018, clinical practice guidelines that were basically like, hey, you shouldn't be doing surgical interventions on what we call quote unquote chronic degenerative meniscal tears with the presence of knee osteoarthritis under basically no circumstances. And so um, kind of the thing that started emerging out of that that we talk about uh, in this write-up this month is people were saying, well, maybe there's a a subgroup of people that present with quote-unquote mechanical symptoms like I was talking about with the bucket handle tear or locking of the knee joint um, that should should have it. And maybe we can find subgroup characteristics pre-surgery to identify that in patient characteristics and that will influence outcomes. And it's uh, kind of the, the broad stroke of it is that doesn't work out very well. We're not able to really identify patient characteristics that would dictate outcomes for surgery being more positive because of their case presentation. We're not seeing that because you're having mechanical symptoms that you must go and have surgical intervention. Um, and in fact, I even discussed an article, uh, uh, I'm going to butcher the name by Silvonen that specifically looks at mechanical symptoms in a population and surgical intervention and some still reporting symptoms post surgical intervention, which is interesting. So it's kind of just a, a, a wash on subgrouping for surgical interventions for those presenting with meniscal tears, which kind of then leads into population questions like, well, what about um, young adults, 18 to 40? What about pediatrics and what about athletes? Yeah. So just again, to give the listeners at home kind of a lay of the land, if you have an acute injury to your knee, effectively you were running or you were doing some activity and then, you know, you injured your knee, you're going to, and you go to the doctor, the physical exam is the first thing to happen. And, you know, they'll perform a bunch of tests with limited validity and, you know, reliability (laughs) as far as actually diagnosis. And I say this kind of chuckling because, you know, in med school and residency, we're taught that, you know, this is what you do. And, And I don't necessarily know that there are a lot of things wrong with that other than the lack of sort of appropriate caution in interpreting those things. Because I consider myself like fairly well-trained on the physical exam, particularly with the musculoskeletal exam. It's just a personal interest of mine. And, you know, uh, but 
when you when you learn the exams and you do a bunch of them and then you you know keep going down the rabbit hole of the research you kind of find out like mm, maybe i shouldn't be as confident in uh you know how how reliable my exam is but you know what are you gonna do not examine so that's so so that's what happens and then um if you know basically if the clinician's not thinking um, that you have an ACL tear or something else that immediately requires like advanced imaging, like a CT or an MRI, there's a handful of different like sort of criteria. Uh, one is the Ottawa knee rule, which is effectively just a set of criteria that if you fall into, if you meet one or more of these criteria, you get an X-ray of the knee. So like if you're over 55, you have isolated tenderness of the patella, tenderness at the head of the fibula, inability to flex the knee 90 degrees, there's a handful of different rules. Um, any of those you're getting a knee x-ray and a lot of times what you'll see on those x-rays is just like this chronic like you alluded to it's chronic sort of processes that are occurring in the knee not like an acute but you can't differentiate them is the problem in in, in many cases so you're just like okay well, i see this now is this a an incidentaloma you know you just found it or as i would say a twud you know or is it something and so then you're you're kind of like, well, what do you do now? Um, and so and then you, most of the time you'll get referred for PT for, you know, six weeks. And if PT doesn't work or you see like what you alluded to is like per, uh, persistent symptoms. So things like the knee locks in motion, for example, or, you you know, there's little improvement in six weeks. Um, you might be referred to for surgery. I mean, that's that's pretty much the kind of end of the algorithm for most uh, clinical encounters here. So broad stroke sort of things. What if you had to weigh in on the overall evidence for surgery for meniscal tears, what would your kind of takeaway be? Yeah, I don't know that a lot's changed from the original piece for the logic of rehab from saying that um, that one kind of ended, if I recall correctly, where it was like, okay, so we know we have clinical practice guidelines and sufficient evidence from uh, placebo at that time versus um, APM, which is just arthroscopic uh, partial meniscectomy, that it was no better than placebo. Uh, so Volnan did that study as well. It was kind of ending with, okay, so we shouldn't do this for quote-unquote chronic degenerative uh, meniscal tears. So then the question became, well, what about acute, which um, various authors have talked about. Like, that's really hard to figure out. Like, how do we define acute versus degenerative outside of an age factor um, and persistency of symptoms? And so then it's kind of trying to figure out, well, maybe we could subgroup these people, which is where I add in the new kind of articles that have uh, come out in the past two to three years. And it's like, well, I still don't think that looking at the totality of evidence that it would be useful for people presenting with, uh, you know, knee symptoms, persistent knee symptoms, activity related knee symptoms. I don't think that locking, I don't um, think that any type of surgical intervention being validated based on the finding of a meniscal alterations at this time appears sufficient to warrant surgery, especially when we have data demonstrating conservative management having uh, pretty basic equal outcomes oftentimes. And so then the question becomes risk versus benefits. If we're not seeing, uh, you know, exponentially greater benefits for surgical intervention, and we can acquire the same outcomes with conservative management, why are we doing a higher risk intervention? But then, then yeah. we found like, um, layering in, can we predict, you know, based on subgrouping, whether there would be better outcomes and that didn't hold up either. 
So that kind of took away, like, can we subgroup these people? That doesn't appear so. So at this time, it doesn't appear to be at console a specific variable that can be identified in an adult population that means like, all right, you know, don't pass go, go straight to surgery. There's no conservative management here. And then even, you know, the the narrative of quote unquote failed conservative management doesn't seem very supportive because that needs to be a very nuanced discussion of what was done in conservative management. What does that mean? So then we had to look at young adults, 18 to 40, don't really have data on them. Um, it's hopefully coming. There's some uh, pending trials, but we don't have a whole lot of data on a younger adult population on, you know, we now have placebo controlled and sham controlled surgeries uh, on the meniscus for the older population groups, but we don't know, does that translate to 18 to 40? Do the circumstances in which they would probably find a meniscal tear change things? And then we have even less evidence on pediatrics. There, there's two systematic reviews that I found that look at the pediatric population less than 18 years old. And both reviews looked at the same eight case series studies, oddly. Um, there, there was nothing new being added. And uh, again, these are case series. There wasn't randomized controlled trials. There wasn't looking at, you know, are we just entertaining ourselves with this idea of surgery when natural history and regression to the mean are occurring anyways? And Seeing what I've seen in the imaging studies on youth athletics and like uh, baseball players in the shoulder, I'm getting very skeptical that we're not going to have similar findings in the knees of youth athletes. And so I'm curious of how this is going to go in the next like five to 10 years with these asymptomatic findings and then validation for surgery if we're going to be backpedaling on it for especially meniscal repairs in, in youth athletes. Yeah, I think I think you're going to get, you know, if we had an orthopedist on here or, or a sports med a doc who had been maybe out of residency for or out of fellowship for some period of time, they I think they'd probably make the argument that, you know, meniscal surgery is should be reserved for individuals with either locking or the persistent symptoms who highly value a rapid return to function. The idea being like the main advantage might be a speed of recovery, for example, not necessarily outcomes at one year or two years, that would be maybe the argument they would try to make. But I think what you're saying is that the data we have right now doesn't really support that strongly. And we should probably be more cautious with our interpretation of that data, just given what we have. Tie this, tie the room together. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, ru- the rug in uh, <laughs> the big Lebowski. It really ties the room together. Yeah. I mean, it's just because that's what somebody who listens to this, who's either an orthopedic, you know, resident or, or cert, you know, is out and they're attending or, or sports med might, you would be like, well, these guys, you know, they're, they're still role for this. And we're not saying there's no role for surgery, just that the data is less yeah. good <laughs> and less supportive than we'd want it to be to, to be re- routinely recommending it. It's getting complicated. There's one article I discussed specifically that looks at can orthopedic posi- uh, physicians actually predict outcomes based on subgrouping and patient characteristics. And it, it's less than a coin flip uh, being able to validate surgery and their predictions. Um, so I think, you know, I, it's tough for me to be like uh, very black and white, like, oh, it should never be done on anyone for any circumstance. I think it would be a wrong takeaway message. I just don't think we found a very specific subgroup that necessitates this, not that it doesn't exist. And then we're having emerging data coming out for the young adult population by Thorland and Scoo, who did a, I'm probably butchering that name as well, but they did a feasibility study on conservative management via exercise therapy for a young adult population. And that had, you know, pretty good 
outcomes. Uh, but there's obvious, you know, restrictions to a feasibility study. So we just got to wait and see what else comes out. The, the weird part I think we're going to get into is like we're doing these interventions and, and this happens not just in the orthopedic field or with surgery in this case, but a lot of times we're doing these all these interventions and we really don't have the evidence that support them of them. And then now the, to your point, the counter argument comes out, well, we need evidence saying we shouldn't be doing it. And I'm like, well, that's not really how science works. Like we've been doing something where we didn't have the evidence and now you're wanting counter evidence. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when people talk about, oh, evidence of absence or absence of evidence is not an evidence of absence. Okay. I get what you're saying, but what we have here is, is not necessarily an absence of evidence. It's, it, it, we, we have studies on this intervention that don't necessarily work out as well as you might expect. And, and again, the big takeaway here is that when, you, when we're looking at pain, um, symptomology, it's, we shouldn't first rush to the an anatomical basis for this. You know, it doesn't mean we're not considering the anatomy, but it's considered in a broad in a broader context of the person's experience and what's going on. Um, so not just like, oh, you have knee pain. I'm thinking meniscus, ACL, you know, MCL, PCL, bursitis. Like, you know, it's got to be an anatomical thing. Got to find the trigger. Got to find the source. Got to find the pain generator. That's uh, the model we're trying to really move away from. And I think this, your review, again, to use another big Lebowski reference, ties the room together. <laughs> so yeah. So, all right, look guys, if you're not subscribed yet to the Barbell Medicine Research Review, here's your chance. Go over to the website, enter the code research. You get 50% off the first month. We're also, for you listeners at home, going to offer up each one of the individual issues. If you just want to purchase one of the issues. You can do that, read it, review it, see if it's something you want to subscribe to. We'd really like to have you on board so we can deliver the latest nuance and all the health and fitness information to your inbox every month. This is like a scoping review. Like for people who have no idea about meniscus repairs, meniscus injuries, like you you went ham on this thing. So it's not just, it's not just like one article, like thoughts. It's like large topic thoughts. And then Citation, citation, citation. So I think you did a smash up job. Um, anything you want to send the listeners home with, Michael? No, I mean, it's just, um, you know, the big takeaway is just, this stuff gets complicated. And that's our goal with uh, the monthly review is to try to, to really, uh, the, uh, to use a word that Derek and Austin give me a lot of crap for, elucidate. It's <laughs> very nuanced topics. <laughs> um, that's right. Yeah. Elegantly elucidate topics. Yeah. So it, it's not as simple as you often see on social media. So hopefully this kind of helps give some guidance to the clinicians out there who are trying to deal with people who are presenting with, you know, non-traumatic uh, knee pain. Perfect. All right, Mike, thanks again for joining us. We'll catch you next month. My name is Derek Miles. I'm a physical therapist at Stanford Children's Health in the sports and orthopedics department. Derek, we're wrapping up the March edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review uh, for March 2020. And I I just got to tip my cap to you because I feel like I'm the only one who really gets into the naming the nomenclature of these uh, (laughs) of these articles. You know, I try to be funny, witty, clever. And uh, I think you again, you, you took the win this month. The, the title of your article is Stretchy Tape is Not Helping, helping Athletes No Matter What Color. Uh, can I just ask what inspired this? I feel like you were just trolling Instagram. You were on the Discover page and then you just – or Explore page and then it just – you were bombarded with Kinesia Tape. 
I'm actually trolling my education at uh, or in physical therapy school because while I was in graduate school, we brought in a person to teach a morning session who stood up in front of a graduate group of students and said with a straight face, blue kinesio tape has a cooling effect and red has a warming effect. And at 7 a.m., I almost spit out my coffee. Um, luckily, I kept it in, but this has stayed Wait. with me to this day. So, is this real? Yeah, this is this actually happened. I, I mean, to be clear, I am not, you know, I don't, I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't have a PhD in psychology. Uh, and so it may be that if you see the color blue, your core temperature changes, or if you see the color red, your, you know, core temperature increases, or you perceive that something. I don't know that that's true. However, it seems like an egregious claim to suggest that the color of the tape has I mean, any sort of effect on the temperature, localized or otherwise. No more egregious than anything else the kinesio tape claims to do. Well, yeah. So it, am I right that the – so is it Rock Tape that now has a sponsorship through the APTA or yes, am I making that? Yes, I've gotten junk mail from the APTA espousing the wonders of Rock Tape, which – you know, makes me wonder where my money is going as a professional membership. Yeah, well, it seems it seems like you're funding big tape. So yes. see what you're see what you're shilling for. We're really uh, trying so, to hold the profession together. That's right. Hey, literally, literally ties the room together. Uh, <laughs> I made a big Lebowski joke with Mike, so we might have to circle back to that. Um, so to give the listeners at home, if you have been living under a rock or are not familiar with the functional fitness sort of the competitive functional fitness industry that is CrossFit. Uh, you might not have seen this kinesio tape, although it has broken into other sports too. Uh, so you, you, you know, if you've been noticing these colorful bandages looking things on people's bodies, usually over a joint or something, that's what we're talking about today. In fact, my beloved Tiger Woods, T Dub, he's he's back, he's playing. He has this stuff on his neck, like I thought that he just like he had some back hair. That's what I thought it was. I was like, that seems strange because. I didn't notice this before, <laughs> but he had this K tape just creeping above his collar, like on both sides of his, the erectors in the cervical spine. And I was like, uh, what? So t take the listeners at home through, like, what is the purported benefit of kinesio tape? Like, why are you supposed to use it? What, what do people say that it does? Well, you know, I think sometimes you have to put the tape in an obvious place. It's almost like you can't quite commit to a tribal tattoo. So the spider kinesio tape has to do the job. <laughs> Is this like an athlete tramp stamp? Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> but no, kinesio tape gets claimed to do all kinds of things from expediting injuries to helping increase performance to, you know, pick an injury and they'll give you a narrative associated with it. But what's interesting historically is this stuff has been around for a long time. And obviously, as we've learned, arguing strictly from evidence isn't exactly uh, good for eliciting behavior change. But sometimes when you hear the background of how this came to be, it, it, it is a little laughable. So kinesio tape first really made its appearance in the 2008 Olympics when a lot of athletes were donning it. And, you know, I'm sure in the 2020 Olympics, if they do happen, we'll have some new uh, modality that leaves a mark on an athlete that will be having to debunk. But kinesio tape is funny because it's had nothing to do with evidence. 
Kinesio Tape donated 50,000 rolls of tape to 58 countries, which is basically like free advertising. Was there like a taping, like a tape shortage? Like did they just <laughs> donate a bunch of tape or, or is it like to like athletic trainer programs or just, or, or what happened? Well, yeah, they donated to the medical supply units, but it's great marketing because at the time, you know, all of this stuff was neon pink, neon blue, black, like it was meant to draw attention to the eye, which, you know, is another case for why the tape likely doesn't have a whole lot of benefit too, because why would you really want to be advertising where you're hurt to people? Yeah, exactly. Particularly, particularly in a combat sport or another, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily want to show people like, I've got this problem with my shoulder as you as evidenced by all of this tape around the entire joint uh so do they say that like if you apply tape to the joint you're adding stability to the joint or or what's their like purported mechanism of action here well it depends on the uh who you're asking because i'm sure one practitioner might say he's adding stability and the other might say he's adding mobility but really what it comes down to is Kinesio Tape and another brand have both lost class action suits for making false claims on their website. And huh. if you look over the past few years, the verbiage associated with the claims has been watered down a whole lot. So yeah, the, the, the overall claims themselves have lost a lot of foundation just because there is no evidential backing for it. Yeah, this is the same thing that happened in the with CBD. So that I talked about this in my article. So in 2019 alone, the FDA sent out 20 effectively like cease and desist letters and, and with additional notices, basically telling these manufacturers to either stop saying what you're saying about these products uh, and stop manufacturing these products because what you're saying, not only is what you're saying is false, but like what you're actually saying in the product that's in the product is also wrong. So the FDA like took it into their own hands to do this. So it sounds like there's been some similar sort of act actions on the, the taping industry but it's it shows no signs of slowing down. I mean, people, this is everywhere. What? How big is the market in this place? Do you know? Well, so they're actually they've looked at this, and as of 2019, the Kinesio tape market was 180 million a year, and expected to grow to 310 million a year by 2024. Gotcha. So, so small small business, just yeah, startup stuff. Yeah, just you know, pennies. Got and it. This is for something that has no good evidential backing. In fact, the four best level evidence meta-analysis we have on it all come to the same general consensus that there is no good use for this stuff, which is pretty impressive that you can find four meta-analysis that all agree on something as well. That, right. that in and of itself should be uh, pretty damning. Yeah. Now, I know what somebody at home is thinking, especially if they've had this and they, you know, they like it or they have a bunch of rolls that they bought or they even go see somebody who does this to them. Let's say, well, look, you know, I had the shoulder pain. Somebody put this tape on me uh, in a particular way and I felt better afterwards. I felt, you know, like I could function better. What, I don't really care what the evidence says. It works for me. What's, uh, what's your response to that? Well, in fact, they actually really hit on what the evidence says about it. It's much more, and this is across the board for a lot of the passive modalities, whether it be dry needling, cupping, K-tape, IA stem. It's not that the intervention itself is doing anything inherently to the tissue that's advocating for healing or whatever claims. It's the narrative attached to it. And that's what this study by Analay really looked at. And it was how much can we play with the expectations and how much will that affect outcomes? So the premise of this, go ahead. 
Oh, well, I'm just curious if there's been a study where it's like a user, like a self sort of applied uh, kinesio tape versus like a professional apply, professionally applied kinesio tape to kind of like suss out, you know, is the clinician involved important here as far as like whatever narrative and potential placebo mechanism that's been like, you know, realized or is it just the act, the tape? I don't, I don't know if that's been done. Yeah, I haven't seen anything directly related to who's applying the tape um, as far as the study. That would be interesting to see. But, you know, that starts getting into some of the minutiae of what the clinicians in this study discuss regarding, like, you're not going to apply tape to yourself if you don't believe in it. Like, you and I aren't going to be out taping ourselves up. We, we know better. So there's already some inherent beliefs in there, like, from the get, and that's going to influence the overall outcomes of the study. Gotcha. So all the people who participated in the study had a rotator cuff tear, yes. at least diagnosed via MRI. Mm-hmm. And then what, they had just applied K-tape to these folks' shoulders and then tested them or what? Well, they went and took classes in the certification you need in order to be able to do whatever is deemed the appropriate taping job. That way they were, of course, doing it the correct way according to whatever guru told them they should. But the, the real kicker in this is they divided these people into three groups. The first group, they told there's no evidence for kinesio tapes effectiveness. The second group, they told there's limited evidence for kinesio tapes effectiveness. And the third group, there is excellent evidence for kinesio tapes effectiveness. And gotcha. that was the difference in the interventions between the group. And surprise, surprise, there were predictable differences in the outcome measures in range of motion and pain. So, so those, I assume those who were told that there's excellent evidence had better scores than those who told there was some evidence, limited evidence. They, they, and those folks did better than the folks who were told there was no evidence. Yes, sir. That's exactly how it went. All right. So then the question, if I'm going to play devil's advocate here, well, look, you know, there's nothing harmful about uh, putting this tape on a joint, you know, if, if, uh, why don't I just placebo my clients or my patients uh, into believing it works and, and use this if I need to. Well, uh, typically I go back to the Michael Jordan Space Jam defense here, where at the end of the movie, he gave them MJ's magic juice for them to defeat the Monstars. And, you know, there wasn't any harm. They won the game out of it. But we all look at that and we think it's semi-ludicrous. So if, you, if you're really going to consider yourself a, a clinician who adheres to the evidence, can you in good conscience do something that you know has no effect, but you're going to assign an effect to it in order to get your narrative across to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, the bigger issue becomes when you, cause pe- if people keep asking you, you know, well, what, what is this supposed to do? Or you feel like you're really trying to sell this, you know, to somebody that it's going to work for them. If you, if you start telling them, yeah, we're aiding the joint in some way, either adding mobility or stability or you're, changing the tissue you're changing the musk you know muscles or tendons or whatever well now you've sort of told the person that their joint is defective or their muscles are defective and they need assistance from this thing just that they need the tape correct yeah exactly and like what if they don't what if they run out of the tape or as the person who you saw (laughs) who apparently said there's a difference between colors. What if they're out of blue tape and all you have is red tape? I know. Like, and it's an event in Florida. You might overheat if you had the pink tape on you. Just your joint, just one joint. Yeah. Just yeah. One joint. Yeah. 
So I assume you're not getting any checks from rock tape or kinesio tape. Uh, is it safe to assume that you just don't recommend using this for any for any not, sort of uh, not at intervention? All. Not, not at all. all. Okay. Um, I uh, put it in the category as mostly worthless. Mostly worthless. Got it. But what do you think about uh, uh, like an intervention like a McConnell taping? So for the listeners at home, McConnell taping is a specific taping strategy to basically get your patella to track correctly. And uh, it's a little more intense than uh, your standard K-tape. Effectively, you're supposed to use like pre-roll and some like pretty high, higher strength tape to really like pull the patella in a particular direction. At least that's how I understand it. Um, what do you think about something like that? It's, all, it's like similar lines as K-tape, but a little bit different. It's, I don't know why we want to wrap everybody up like a Christmas present. Um, <laughs> but even with McConnell taping, there's a couple of base assumptions. Like one, you're assuming there is a malalignment or that we can assess what is a proper alignment and that it needs changed. The evidence for McConnell taping is sorely lacking as well. I think um, off the top of my head, I, I think there's slightly better evidence for some of the outcomes with McConnell taping, but essentially you're comparing like, five-day-old bread to seven-day-old bread. Either way, it's croutons and doesn't need to make a sandwich. So, I like it. You know, your metaphors are, are on point tonight. So we've yes. we've had a Space Jam reference. We've had a Big Lebowski reference. Uh, it's pretty good. So just for, again, for the listeners at home, if you're not subscribed to the research review, Derek goes ham on this. He goes into in-depth on kinesio tape and on of particular interest into some of the sort of testing outcomes like the visual analog scale for pain and uh, in, in kind of explaining what we're actually looking at. So even if you're not at all interested in kinesio tape, if you're interested in any sort of these pain outcomes or how you'd actually want to design a study to like look at how you know one intervention affects pain outcomes versus the next, this paper this review by Dr. Miles is fantastic. So, uh, Derek, what do you want to send the listeners at home uh, away with? What's the takeaway? Tape is nothing but a placebo. And as a clinician, if you're going to offer it, you have to concede as such. And you can maximize those effects. But if you're going to maximize that and try and jive with the evidence at the same time, you're walking on an increasingly thin line. I love it. Derek, thanks for joining us here on the Barbell Medicine Research Review. Listeners at home, again, if you're not subscribed to the Research Review and you want to get a preview of this, there's a free issue. It's the January 1st edition of 2019. You get that for free if you want to join uh, with a monthly subscription, get access to all of the past issues. You can uh, sign up, get half off your first month using the code research during checkout. Head over to the website. Link is in the description below. As always, this is Barbell Medicine, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll see you guys next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.